Grab your Bibles, please. Grab your Bibles, open them to 2 Kings chapter 2. We're going to do a, uh, a flyby survey over a few chapters this morning, a couple things within those chapters. But we'll start in 2 Kings chapter 2. Uh, Tim mentioned it when he was up here, but please uh, come on out Wednesday night. We finished uh, Revelation actually a couple weeks ago. We did a Q&A on Wednesday night, and um, uh, we are going to do, we're going to begin Hebrews this week. And so I encourage you to come on out. It's a great book. Uh, I, I want to be careful when I say things like it's a deep book. Yeah, there's, there's depth, there's, there's great truth in it. But it, you know, I think sometimes when we say it's a deep book, it sounds like, oh, you can't figure out what's being said. Not true. Um, it's clear. And so please come on out for that. Um, we're in 2 Kings. Last week we looked at uh, Elijah being taken up in a fiery chariot, and we spent time in communion looking at John the Baptist who comes, you know, uh, in the spirit and the power of Elijah. But we're going to wind back a little bit, and we're going to look at chapter 2 again, and kind of, we're, we're just, there's so many things that happen in Elisha's life, 14 miracles, we're going to look at a few of them here today. We'll wind up, Lord willing, in chapter 5. So, um, I think, you know, part of the reason I think that the Lord, you know, said, let's sing that chorus again. My spirit, I'm sure yours, I could tell as you were singing, you know, really resonates with, with the truth there. But also in light of what we're looking at here today in, in God's word, I think we forget sometimes, as much as we love music like that, I think we can easily forget just, uh, just how deep and how powerful and how deadly is the curse that's on the world today just how deep and how deadly and how dark is the curse that's on every single person who's never given their lives to Jesus Christ. How deep and how dark and how deadly is the curse that's on those who, who are not non-believers, but they're make-believers, or in some cases, misbelievers. They've, they've, they've believed amiss, but haven't really placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And... And so as we walk through these scriptures, I, I think one of, one of the things is that theme continues through here, the curse, and, and what Jesus Christ has done to lift the curse, what Jesus Christ has done to pay the price for all of our sins. We're going to be looking at uh, a few verses here beginning in chapter 2. We are in a I guess you could say it's almost like we're in a relay race with very high stakes, and, and the baton... Um, at one time, I would have said the baton has been passed to our generation. Um, we still have it, but the baton's being passed to a younger generation. And now we need to run with that. We need to take it. We have a responsibility to do it because it seems everything I see in Scripture, and uh, as I sense the Spirit moving in my life, I believe that the curtain is coming down on this age. And we have the baton. We have to keep running the race. And it's too easy to get caught up in all of the things that we love about um, our world, all the things that we love. And there's nothing wrong with money. There's nothing wrong with houses and all those things. But we can, our affection can go to those things apart from God. And so with that in mind, uh, so we, uh, Elisha, or Elijah, has, has gone up in a... Uh, 
fiery chariot. Let's begin in verse 11, chapter 2. It says, Then it happened as they continued on, they talked that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them, Elijah and Elisha. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried out, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and its horsemen. And so he saw him no more, and he took hold of his own clothes, and he tore them into two pieces. And he also took up, note this, he took up the mantle of Elijah, which had fallen from him, and he didn't need that in heaven, and went back and stood by the bank of the Jordan. And then he took up the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him. He struck the water, and he said, Where? is the Lord God of Elijah. And when he had also struck the water, it was divided this way and that in Elisha crossed over. The first of 14 miracles that are going to happen in Elisha's life he had, uh, or in his ministry, the next 50 years of his ministry, there'll be 14 uh, different miracles that happen. He had asked for a double blessing uh, and a double portion of God's spirit compared to what Elijah had had, you can count seven, if you like, you can count seven uh, miracles in Elijah's life. But Elisha's is much more productive, you can say. He struck the waters of the Jordan, parted, he crossed over. And I, and I need to underscore, I really do believe that it, it's too easy for us to sit in a room like this and to, and to look at the Bible and to, talk, and to look at these ancient stories and say, that wasn't that cool. And it is cool, of course. But we're called to that same race. Now, that doesn't mean you know, you're an Elisha or an Elijah or whatever you know, that, that is. But, but that we have a responsibility to say, well, I don't have that portion. And yes, you do, actually. Jesus said that you will do these and more than you've seen me do because I'm going to the Father. What did he mean? He said, I'm sending the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit of God, you know, who, you know, who empowered the Lord Jesus Christ and everything he did is the same spirit that now indwells us. Too often we get confused by that and we think there's a, a bunch of weird stuff that we're supposed to do. That's the sad part of the way Christians interpret that. But we have, we have the power of the Holy Ghost inside of us. We have the, the power of the Holy Spirit to live as he's called us to live and to, and to do the work and to be the light and to be the salt that he's called us to be in this world. That doesn't mean that you're called to be a missionary, but you're called to be a witness. It doesn't mean that you've been called to be a pastor, but we've all been called in one regard, you know, to shepherd others, it, 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 certainly our own children. Uh, it may not even mean that you're called to lead a home fellowship, but we're all called to fellowship. There's a, there's a thing about Americanism, which I love, but if we're not careful, it runs contrary to Christianity and that is independence. We're not called to be independent. We're called to be dependent on him, and therefore one body, the body of believers. Americans miss that a lot, and it's very easy for us to do. And now when the sons of the prophets, it's almost like a, uh, uh, like a school, like a little bitty um, seminary, you might say. When the sons of the prophets... Uh, who were from Jericho, saw him, Elisha. They said, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him, and they bowed to the ground before him, uh, saying, look now, oh, excuse me, I just missed. Um, 
and, and they, they, they came to him, they bowed to the ground before him, they said to him, look, now there are 50 strong men with your servants, please let them go and search for your master, lest perhaps the spirit of the Lord has taken him up and cast him down somewhere on some mountain or in some valley. And, and he said, you know, you, you shall not send anyone, you shouldn't do that. In other words, and there, the, the scholars are divided about all this stuff because it, it seems... And I don't want to go back to the whole story. You can read it for yourself. But when Elijah comes back after three and a half years of drought, uh, and he sees Obadiah, the servant of King Ahab, um, he says, uh, hey, don't do this, man, I, because if I go tell Ahab that you're here and then you disappear, you know, I, I'm going to lose my head. So there seems to be this thing where maybe in, in some times where Elijah shows up and then he vanishes. I don't know, but that's what a lot of people believe, and apparently that's what they're thinking here. And, and, and it goes on, and it says this, pick up in verse 19, then the men of the city said to Elisha, please notice the situation of the city is pleasant. This is the city of Jericho. It's a nice city. It's a city of palms. As my Lord sees, but the water's bad. The water's bitter, in other words. The ground is barren. And, and, and he said, well, bring me a new bowl. And he put salt in it. And so they brought it to him. And then when he went out to the source of the water, he cast it in the salt there. And he said, thus says the Lord, I have healed this water, and from it there shall be no more death, no more barrenness. So the water remains healed to this day, according to the word of Elisha, which he spoke. You say, how can salt change bitter water? The salt didn't do it. It was God who did it, right? It was a miracle. Um, the interesting thing is uh, there's still that, I remember seeing it in 1993. It's very difficult, or a lot more difficult to get to Jericho today than, than it was when I went to Israel the first time in 93. But um, you can see a spring they call Elisha's spring. Uh, whether it's, that's the same one, I don't know. But, um, but one of the things that stands out here to me, you know, Jesus said that you're the light of the world. He said, we're the salt of the earth. And very often we use that terminology. Salt of, he's a salt of the earth guy. We, we use that usually to mean he's just down to earth. That's not what Jesus meant. You know, you don't, you don't hear light, but it illuminates, it directs, it gives clarity, it gives direction. You know, you don't hear salt, but it heals and it preserves. That's who we're supposed to be. There's a whole lot of noise under the banner of Christianity, which has nothing to do with salt or light. And, and what we see here is that God uses this salt, it's a picture, and it runs through the scripture, do your own uh, study of it, and you find this type of, of salt. It runs through the scripture from the law all the way on, out into the New Testament. And the same thing with light. We're not to be heard per se, but we're, there's an effect that's supposed to happen from our life. There's a, there's a healing that's supposed to happen. I'm just picking on a few things as we go. We come to this that you can't avoid. Verse 23. Some of us who are follically challenged will appreciate this. And then he went up from there to Bethel. And as he was going up the road, some youths... Now, okay, uh, let me just read it. Some youths came from the city and they mocked him. And they said to him, go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. <laughs> I guess some, some of you never read this before. I can tell that, right? So he turned around and he looked at them and he pronounced a curse on them in the name of the Lord. And two female bears, two she bears, came out of the woods and mauled 42 of them. Doesn't say they killed them. 
but messed him up pretty good, apparently. And then he went from there to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. What is going on? If you have King James, it says two, uh, two children. I don't know who has King James, but anyway, I think it says two children. Uh, some of you, depending upon NAB, I think says youths or something. Um, uh, New Living Translation or ESV, one of those, says young children. I'm not going to take you through the Hebrew, but basically the word na'ar is used to describe a young man. Um, who can be typically anywhere from about 15, even as far out as 30. Uh, in, in that day and age, um, young men and young women matured much sooner than they seem to do nowadays. Um, and they weren't at home playing video games in their mom's basement. Um, they were working, they were married, uh, and they were called na'ar. That's what we're talking about, Na'ar here. So it's not like kindergartners came out and mocked the prophet and he sent the bears out to him to mess them up real good. That's not what happened. Uh, he pronounced the curse on these young men. They're mocking. What's going on? Does anybody remember Bethel? What happens at Bethel under Jeroboam? Jeroboam sets up <laughs> golden calf, one in Bethel and one up in Dan. So these are golden calf worshipers. And who are they mocking? Well, we're saying, we th you think they're mocking Elisha, in a sense they are, but he's connected to whom? Elijah, who did what? He went up, go up. So they're, you know, they're mocking this idea, it's kind of interesting for our day and age, they're mocking this whole idea of the rapture. They're, they're, they're mocking this idea, really, God took somebody out of this earth? Are you kidding me? What, you know, what else are you going to tell me? Um, and Elijah pronounced a curse on him, and, and all it says is God brought out these two she-bears, who, I don't know how many were there in the first place, but 42 of them have the, have the scars. And, um, and then the bears went in. Elisha didn't get harmed, just these, just these ones who mocked God. That's really what's happening here. And God will deal with the mockers. doesn't mean he always mocks with she-bears. He doesn't always mock by, by bringing damage to people's lives. But God will deal with the mockers. There's a lot of mocking going on in this day and age. And sadly, what has happened is that the church of Jesus Christ has not done what we just sang. The church of Jesus Christ has not stood up. The church of Jesus Christ has not stood proudly in who we are as the body of Christ, but instead have shrunk away, afraid of the mockery. Well, if we stand in the truth, then let's stand in the truth. That doesn't mean we call down curses. God takes care of that. There's a lot of mockery going on. It happens in our own nation more and more. It's happening around the world. In all of this, there's a, there's a theme that's beginning to run through here, and it will develop as we go through these chapters, and that is that we have the responsibility to bring purification in our society. We have the responsibility to bring healing in our society. No. We can't convert people. We don't do that. We don't have that power or that authority. But each one of us has the word of God. Each one of us has God's spirit. Each one of us has the ability every single day to sow seed, the seed of the word of God, the gospel, in people's lives, and the ability to water those seeds. God's the one who brings the increase. Too often we think, oh, you know, you, but what, I'm supposed to go out and, and bring people to Christ? No. We're to go out and testify. We're to stand 
for Jesus Christ. We're to be who we're called to be, light and salt. It's not about the noise we make. It's about shining the light. It's about bringing healing. It's about um, having a preservative effect in our world because the Spirit of God indwells us. That's what he's using us for in these last days. And it's important that, that we understand this. As we move from chapter 2 and through chapter 3, um, we see that uh, Jehoram has, becomes the king of the northern kingdom. Jehoshaphat becomes the king in, in Judah. We'll deal with him uh, an, another day. But um, remember, Ahab had been the king. He died back in um, 1 Kings, or, or rather uh, chapter 1 of 2 Kings. His son Ahaziah becomes the king, lasts for about a year. He has an accident, falls through the lattice, it says. And Ahab's second son, Jehoram, uh, becomes the king. And uh, a lot of things happen, the Moabite rebellion. You can read about those things for yourself. We get into chapter 4. Uh, Elisha um, is, is moving through an area called, uh, moving toward the north through Shunem. And uh, we read about the widow's oil, and she's, you know, uh, you know, she's about to lose her son into slavery. And Elisha uh, enables her by showing her how to, um, to, to trust the Lord to fill all these jars with oil so she can sell those things and, and buy her son out of slavery. Read about the Shunammite woman barren, she and her husband, barren, no children. And, um, and yet he prays, and then this barren woman, a story we read a lot in the Bible. She has a child, and then the child dies later on, and he um, prays for the child, the child comes back. We come then to verse 38 of chapter 4. And Elisha returned to Gilgal, and there was a famine in the land. Now, there's been a famine for a while, right, as a result of the, of the drought, and now there's still a famine. And why is there a famine in the land? Why is there a famine in the land? Why is there a famine in the land during times of the... When we read the Bible and read about famines in the land, does anybody have an idea why that happens? Sin. Right? As there's persistent sin, and we read about it back in Genesis during the, when it was in the land of Canaan, uh, we read about it in ancient Egypt, we read about it in, uh, in, in Israel during the time of the judges, great sin, right? We read about these famines that come in the land. We read about it, of course, the time, you know, during uh, the time of Ahab and Jezebel. Because of the sin in the land, God brings drought, which results in famine. It's easy for us to sit here and to, and to kind of say, okay, it's a study in ancient history. Uh, it's actually a study in the news today. And I'm not talking about other nations, although it's true over there. But we're beginning to see it in America, and I'm not here to be a doomsayer, but I am here to say, please pay attention to what's going on. What has happened even in our own agricultural uh, industry, if you will, uh, over the course of this last year is breathtaking. For most of uh, my years, and when I was aware and was paying attention to these things, the United States of America usually had two years' worth of, of various grains stored up. If you've been paying attention to the droughts, to the, the severe heat, and this has nothing to do with global warming, it's just heat and drought, 
that have affected the United States. Currently, grain production in America is way down. The grain that we have had, we sold off to, uh, to Europe, who was in trouble, and we used it here so that the grain we're producing, we're trying to use today. So next year's grain, I'm not here to be a doomsayer, but please pay attention, the grain that we would buy, you know, products, breads and things like that next year, which would be produced now, will not be there. See, we, we don't pay attention to that because the news isn't telling us that. But the information's available, all you have to do is look for it. So, you know, when people say store up food, there's one reason right there, not to mention water. So, I, I, so these things, yes, it's ancient history we're reading, but it's also very applicable to the days in which we live. God uses those things to get people's attention. And so what we read is that Elisha, Elisha returned to Gilgal, verse 38, and there was a famine in the land, and the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, and he said to his servant, put on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. Make a vegetable stew, basically is what he's saying. So one went out into the field to gather herbs uh, and found a wild vine and gathered from it a lapful of wild gourds and came and sliced them into the pot of stew, though they didn't know what they were. It's usually sort of a dead giveaway. I guess just speaking in the natural, not giving you know, spiritual application here, just in the natural, if, if you're living in a time of a famine and there's something growing very prolifically and uh, no one's eaten it, there's probably a good reason. Um, School of the Prophets, like most seminary students, they might be, have a lot of Bible smarts, that doesn't mean they know anything else. Um, uh, and then they served it to the men to eat, and now it happened as they were eating the stew that they cried out and they said, man of God, there's death in the pot! And they couldn't eat it. <laughs> I remember a guy, uh, does anybody remember Dave LeComp? Does anybody remember... Don't wave at me. I'm just asking. Do you, do you remember Dave, Le Dave LeConf from Alabama? I remember he said, there's death in the pot, Dottie. There's death in the pot. And uh, <laughs> death in the pot. And they couldn't eat it. It was poisonous. And, and so Elisha said, bring some flour, or some meal your Bible may say. And he put it into the pot. And he said, serve it to the people that they may eat. And there was nothing harmful in the pot. Well, again, what did he do? Did he, did he put flour, miracle flour in, um, miracle, miracle meal in there. It's a picture for us. It's a picture. There's, there was a famine there, and, and he put this flour in, and God is the one who, who healed it. God's the one who purified. But God doesn't write these things for no reason. These things are pictures for us. The flour is a picture the flower, you say, what? how do you know it's a picture? Because the word of God is always portrayed as, well, it's portrayed as one of two things, water or, or grain, right? And so here's grain being poured in and, and it purifies it. We're, we have a famine in our land now, and I'm not talking now about a famine for food. Like Amos said, there's a famine coming, he said. For us, there's a famine now. It's, it's not a famine for food. It's not a famine for water. It's a famine for hearing the word of God. There, I mean, I, there, we have Bibles all over the place. Every, in this room, I've, whatever we have, there's 300 and whatever people in this room right now. And 
there are probably a minimum of six to 700 Bibles represented, not including your phones. Right? And so we have, we have Bibles. People who don't believe, believe God at all have Bibles. There are so many Bibles in our society. It's not a question of the Word of God. It's hearing the Word of God. It's hearing as in applying the Word to our lives. And sadly, that's the case when Amos said that, he said it to the northern kingdom. He said it to people who called themselves the children of God. It's true today where the church is concerned. People who call ourselves the children of God. And we have the Bible. We read the Bible. We, we have special Bible verses. We'll read our daily bread or whatever it may be. But do we apply the word to our lives? That's really the question. There's a famine in the land. There's a famine in our lives. There's a famine in our homes. The famine in our schools. There are, there's famine there's famine going around, and we blame it on the politicians. We blame it on Biden. We blame it on, on the House. We blame it on the Senate. We blame it on all these other people. Well, they have their role. There's no question about that. But the famine is for lack of hearing and applying the Word of God. And, and God is not pointing a finger at the pagans. He points it at the children of God who have his Word, but don't apply it. This world has gone insane, and we know it. The world has gone absolutely insane. I just read this uh, Christian post this morning. I'm surprised it's this small a percentage. But over a third of evangelical pastors, now evangelical is sort of a big, fat word. You know, that can mean a lot of things. But of, of people who call themselves Christian, pastors who call themselves Christians, pastors over all kinds of different churches, but nevertheless they call themselves Christians, over a third, whatever that is, 35% we'll call it, of evangelical pastors believe that good people can earn their way to heaven. Yeah, well, you might be surprised sometime what you might actually believe. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, mess, I'm not picking on you. No, what I'm saying is sometimes we're just, uh, we just feel sorry for people. We think, well, there must be something. God must see how hard they're working. God must see how, how good they really are deep down. Well, God sees who we really are deep down. So if... if if 35%, whatever the number is, of, of pastors, of churches, believe that, then what, are the, what, is the, what do the flocks of those churches believe? There is a curse on our society. There's a curse on the world. It's always been that way. Since the garden, there's been a curse. And there's only one way that that curse is washed away. That curse is only washed away by blood, a certain type of blood. Now, we know it's the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, but even if you go all the way back in Scripture, back to Genesis chapter 4, for that matter, Genesis chapter 3, when sin comes into the world there in the garden, what do Adam and Eve do? They, they make clothing for themselves to cover their nakedness. They didn't even know they were naked up until that point. But once they sinned, once they fell, they, they, and, and we can't even comprehend what that must have looked like to, to have walked clothed in light. I mean, and to walk with the Lord in the cool of the day in the garden. It's so far beyond our comprehension of what, of what that could have been. But it's good for us to ask what that must have been like because we're going to do that 
That's what's ahead for us. But at that time, when they fell, it's hard for us to comprehend just how far the fall was because we tend to, and some of you, I know I've said this before, but many of us, when we think of the fall, we think, well, they were just innocent naked people. Well, they were far, far different than that. And so the fall for Adam and, and, and for his wife Eve was enormous. It was vast. And so they hide and they put clothing that they sewed together, fig leaves, to hide themselves from God. I think I mentioned this before. And I was getting the car repaired one time years ago. We had a Honda back then, and, and, and I'm sitting there. It doesn't matter. Anyhow, I was, I was sitting in, in a dealership waiting for the car to get repaired and drinking my cup of coffee and reading a paper or something, and, and I'm sitting next to this fig tree, and, and it's like hitting me in the ear, and it's like, I'm, I'm dumb enough not to move. I'm just sitting there, and I just keep doing this. And, uh, and after a while, I realize I'm starting to itch over here because fig leaves, have, they secrete you know, an oil, and it, and it makes you itch. And I'm thinking, that's kind of funny. You know, they, they sewed together fig leaves to cover their nakedness. <laughs> now, that isn't ironic. Anyhow, <laughs> cover your nakedness to do it with something that only cause it, it causes your, you to draw, draw attention to your nakedness. But what did God do? After he calls them out and he works through all of that, what does he do? He... He kills, an, or probably a couple, of sheep, and he clothes them with animal skins. That's the standard. That's where sheep become the standard. And from there, we go into chapter 4. Now, Adam and, and Eve have two sons at that point, Cain and Abel. Abel is a keeper of the flocks. Cain is, is growing his, his crops. They both bring an offering, but God refuses Cain's. It's not because he wasn't a hard worker, you could even say it's not that he didn't mean well. I'll be careful how I say that. So we get very sentimental about Cain. The issue is that there's only one type of offering that was right, and that's blood. A blood offering was required. Why? Because only blood can wash away sin. And so, so, so now we, we, you know, we are living in a world today that is cursed by sin. It's still cursed by sin. It's no different than it ever was. Technology's different. We think we're so smart and all that. But the, but the power of the curse of sin is just as great as it ever was. And the destiny of those who do nothing about it, who will not come to, come to the Lord God, come to Jesus Christ for cleansing from their sin, the destiny is still the same. And it's hell. So we come to chapter 5. There was a man, Naaman, a commander of the army of the king of Syria. And he was a great and an honorable man in the eyes of his master, his, the king, because by him, the Lord. Did you note that? That's, this is the enemy of Israel. Let's get it right. Naaman is the commander-in-chief of all of the armies of Syria, the enemy of Israel. And by Naaman, the commander-in-chief, the Lord God had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man, but, big but, but Naaman 
was a leper. Despite our talents, despite our successes, despite all the great things that we can do in our lives or that we do with our lives. You could be a, a mighty, valiant man like Naaman. You can be a brilliant woman. You can, you know, we think of all of the things that we think are so great. But there's a problem here. He's a leper. And leprosy, especially to, to Israel, was a picture of sin. Throughout the Bible, anytime you see leprosy, it's a picture of sin. To us today, we know something about leprosy. It's called Hansen's disease. Now there is not a cure, but there's a way of keeping it abated. But throughout the Bible, it's always seen as a disease that is progressive. It usually starts as a little white spot somewhere. And then it begins to progress. And it, and it goes to those places that are the coolest parts of the body. In other words, it doesn't happen here doesn't happen under your arms where, where we're warmer. It happens out the fingertips and, the, the, and our toes and our nose and our ears because those are the coolest parts of the body. Where there's less blood flow, where there's less blood flow, leprosy, it's, it's an amazing picture, especially when you consider cool, especially the way we use the word cool. Now, that's a four-letter word, especially for a Christian because we love cool. We want to be cool. We want people to think we're cool. But cool is the place where this curse is seen the greatest. Naaman was a great man. He was a valiant man. And amazing, isn't it? He's a pagan. He's a pagan. And yet the Lord God has given that pagan great victory over Israel. How can he do that? Because Israel was in sin. The same way he used Pharaoh, the same way he used Nebuchadnezzar, the way, same way that he used Alexander, the same way he used Caesars, the same way he used Hitler, the same way he's using Putin, the same way he's using Xi Jinping. God uses all of these people in the world in one regard as puppets, you could say. This man is a leper. He's a leper, and, and what can he do? There's nothing he can do. What does God say? Jeremiah 32, I'm God. Is anything too difficult for me? I find this interesting, you know, especially if you go back and you think of who we are, what we're called to. You and I are called to, to, to stand for something. You and I are called to be, again, salt and light in this world. No matter where you are, no matter where you work. You might work in a school district where they say you can't talk about the Lord. You might work in a corporation, a lot different than the corporations I worked in at one point. I've been out of it for a while now. And I know that the, the standards against you know, Christians speaking their minds are greater than ever before, but God has a way of using you. He wants to use you in a way. Don't, don't deny that because he wants to use you. Look at this, verse 2. And the Syrians had gone out on raids and they'd brought back captive a young girl. She's probably, when it said, the, the way it's written in the Hebrew, it seems like we would say she's uh, um, a junior hire. They brought back this young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, if only my master, you'd think what, I mean, I know what I would be thinking. And I think you'd be thinking it too. Get him, kill him destroy him. He ripped me from my family. He deserves this. But that's not what she says. If only my master 
were with the prophet who was in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and he told his master, saying, Thus and thus said the girl who is from the land of Israel. And then the king of Syria said, Go, and I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. He says, go ahead, you go ahead and do this. And it says, uh, so he departed and he took with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, 10 changes of clothing. Some of you people like to check this stuff out. Uh, go check it out for value. It's around $4 million worth of stuff. Four million bucks. He's got, he's got wagons loaded down with, with all of this and he's bringing it to Israel to buy his cleansing from this leprosy. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, Now be advised when this letter comes to you that I've sent Naaman my servant to you that uh, you may heal him of his leprosy. And it happened that when the king of Israel read the letter that he tore his clothes, he said, Am I God? I mean, he's, he's probably, he said, probably said something like, a, Pardon me for a minute. Went into the back room. Ah! <laughs> tore his clothes. Like, they're, they're trying to create another war with me is what they're doing. I can't heal this guy. That, and, and they're trying to set up this impossible situation so that, uh, so that they'll bring war against it. He, so he, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill him to make a lie that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore, please consider and see how he, he seeks a quarrel with me. And so it was when Elisha, the man of God, heard, God apparently tells Elisha, uh, that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent the king, saying, uh, Why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me, that he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. And, the, and Naaman went with his horses and his chariot, and he stood by the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. But Naaman became furious, he went away and said, indeed, I said to myself, he'll surely come out to me, right? He thought to himself, because that's what great men do. I think it, therefore it should be. I thought to myself, he'll surely come out to me and he'll stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand, boomity, bloomity, bomity, dominity, dominity, bomity, you know, and, you know, just like they do on TV, he's thinking. <laughs> they, they do that. I've seen this stuff, dominity, dominity, all that. They're going to wave his hands all over the place, and he'll heal the leprosy. Are not the Abana and the Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be clean? So he turned and he went away in a rage. You've got to be kidding me. There are all kinds of rivers in this world. Why that river? Why do I have to do that? And those of you who've been to Israel can relate to this. If you, know, you, you come to Israel... You have all these ideas of the mighty Jordan and, and all this, and you see the Jordan River and you say, seriously? <laughs> it's, just, it's like Neshamani Creek is bigger than this. <laughs> right? So, and, and these two rivers, you saw them, the Aban and the Farpar, are pretty significant rivers in Syria. If we're talking about a river, there are better rivers than this, he's thinking. People do that all the time. There's other rivers there's a river of Buddhism. There's a river of good works. There's all kinds of religious rivers around. If it's a matter of seeing God, I could take any river to see God. You're actually technically correct. Whatever river you want to use, you will see God. Briefly. <laughs> Years ago, I remember talking to someone who said, you know, all the religions of the world go up the same mountain. Yeah, I said, but all but one go off the cliff. Do you want to do that? 
because there's, there's a thing called objective truth, and, and we have it right here in the Word of God. Aren't there other rivers? There've got to be other rivers. No. And, and I love this. It says, his servants came to him. Now, this took guts. <laughs> they said, my father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, wouldn't you have done it? How much more than when he says to you, wash and be clean? So he went down. He's probably thinking, and, and I, I, I know what I'd be thinking if I was one of those servants. I'd be saying, oh God, if you're really there, <laughs> I hope this works, right? Because these people aren't, you know, they're not Jews, they're not, not believers. It says that, where am I? Verse 13, right? Wasn't that where we were? Yeah. Is that in my Bible? So he went down. There it is, 14. He dipped seven times in the Jordan. Think on the muddy banks of the Jordan going down into this muddy, it's basically a muddy river at that point. Going down first time, coming up. Going in the second time, coming up third time. The fourth time, he's probably glaring at his servants. You better hope this works. And, his, and he came out, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. Every great general wants to have flesh like the flesh of a little child. You know, he's got this nice pink skin now. He's cleansed. He obeyed the truth. This is not in his nature to do this. But he knew that this would kill him if he didn't. And so he was forced to do it. He was willing to go in. He was willing to take the plunge, if you want to call it that, because he knew that if he didn't, he would die. Scripture says, Isaiah, God says, come now. Let's reason together, you and I. Today, let's reason together. Let's reason together. Don't just sit here and say, you know, my wife made me. My parents made me. No, no, let's reason together. God says, though your, skin, your sins are as scarlet, I will make you as white as snow. That's what he does. He changes lives to the point where we want to serve him. We want to be what God wants us to be. We read the rest of the story, and here Naaman, we'll look at it next week, but Naaman's going to say, look, he's so changed that he, he knows what's going to be required of him when he goes back to Syria, what, his, what the king is going to require of him. And, and he's a changed man. He, he wants to be what God wants him to be. And it only took him a couple hours to get to that point. It's amazing how many of us say we're, we're Christians and it takes us years to do anything. And here's a man who's changed immediately. Not just his skin, but his attitude. So much so that he wants to worship God because he realizes this is not about religion. He wants to worship the one who has cleansed him. Listen, he wants to worship the one who's cleansed him, cleansed him. For, for him, the first thing he's seeing is the leprosy's gone. His skin is brand new. But the greater application is for us. Our sins are forgiven, washed away, clean, and God's eyes as white as snow. That demands something of us. And thankfulness for us is a barometer of who we are. 
Am I thankful for what God has done so much so that I want to serve him, that I want to be that man that he wants me to be, that I want to do those things that he wants me to do? And if not, let's talk about the nature of the change that did or did not occur. It's easy in our day and age to say, oh, yeah, 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 I did that. But did you? I'm not doubting anybody's salvation. What I'm asking is, there's a seriousness here about what's happened to Naaman. And it's no less serious than what he offers to each one. There's a curse on the world. There's a curse on all mankind, including Americans, by the way. And he says, just come to me. Come to me for healing. Dip yourself, so to speak, in this river. People don't like that river. People like the beautiful rivers, the big rivers, the religious rivers. They don't like that river of blood stuff. They don't like that, that river of grace and, and all that Bible stuff. That's the only river. That's the only river where cleansing is found. Listen, if you don't know Jesus Christ, it's so easy, and you hear it every week. I know you do. If you don't know Jesus Christ, seriously, if it all happened today, if you blow your brains out because of a, a car accident, are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? I don't mean in church. Are you in Christ? Do you know him? Does he know you is the most important. Are your sins cleansed, paid for? Do you know that you have everlasting life? And if you don't, listen, today, as we sing this last song, come on up here. Please, come on up here. Give your life to Jesus Christ today. It's a simple matter of saying, Lord Jesus, I know that you died for me. I know there's a river. And that river is the only river that will cleanse me of my sins. That's what he desires for you today. Would you stand with me?